Hello and welcome to Sci-Fi Sidebar. I'm your co-host, Cece. And I'm Peter, your other co-host. Welcome to our episode on John Scalzi's The Last Emperor, the conclusion to the Collapsing Empire trilogy. That's uh, not what it's called. Well, it's called The Last Emperor. No, I mean the trilogy. What's the trilogy called? The oh, the Interdependency series. Yeah, 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 you're right. Well, it started with the Collapsing Empire. You know what I mean. Probably. Okay, let's move okay, forward. This is a fair point, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is sort of a, a moot question, because A, you picked this book, and B, we both read it before. But how'd you like the book, Peter? Uh, I, surprisingly, still loved it. Uh, wow, shocker. <laughs> I think this is probably my third time with this book. Third time? It came out in April. And? Okay, just, uh, okay. <laughs> I have to account for the fact that you, like, listen to it all day at work, too. Listen to books all day. Yeah, I time. do have a job that is very conducive to audiobooks all day, every day. That's 40 hours, at least, of podcasts or of audiobooks a week. Yeah, it used to be podcasts, and I finished a bunch of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> had to backfill that time this this book came out in again let me just remind you april 2020 so it was like such a godsend <laughs> really during was. that time scalzi um, crying out in the desert yeah scalzi is gifting us in the desert we're in the desert scalzi is dropping mana and it is this book Scalzi's overhead in a in a plane dropping mana and water emergency supplies <laughs> no we're heart. mixing metaphors here but it's fine <laughs> oh yeah it doesn't matter um metaphors are meant to be mixed you know the the only problem is that it was only eight hours but that was better for finishing it in the month and recording on it so um yeah it was a great book it very tidily i thought cleaned up the whole series like there's a couple sort of threads that could be picked up but they don't have to be they could just keep blowing in the wind forever and that would be fine Though I do really want a sequel series about Mars and Chenevere and their adventures. Yes, that would be excellent. The and I wouldn't mind finding out what like how how the logistics go for the rest of the uh, for you know Kiva's reign and for the rest of the collapse and how that all gets managed. So before we started recording, I was reading an article from Scalzi that he wrote, kind of just a a loose coalition of words is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> Uh, that he wrote directly after he finished writing The Last Emperor. And part of the thing, one of the things he was very adamant about was like, look, this was, I set out to make this a trilogy, which was a completely new concept. I never like gone out and said, I am doing X number of books. <laughs> John Scalzi's like, I invented this. This is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I have a great idea. It's called a trilogy. <laughs> you do three books and stop. <laughs> You clean up your story. It's it's perfect. <laughs> you you, you tie your story it. up. You don't like leave a bunch of loose threads that beg for a sequel you'll never provide. It's awesome. <laughs> so go uh, on. But anyway, so Scalzi was basically like, "Look, usually when I do these things, I like put out a book out there, and if people like it, I write more." It just keeps going and going, right? Like the uh, what's it called? The one you love and I love. Old Man's War. Man's War. Yeah, Old Man's War. That's a great series. There's like a billion books in it now, isn't there? I think there's like six books or five books, something like that. It just keeps going. <laughs> and they're excellent. They they it is pretty done though at the end of it. Oh, okay. I well, think it was very it much. Never mind. We're not going to. Scalzi was like, I'm over this. <laughs> but that was not because like, y- you know, he had 
set out to tell a specific story and then he had finally concluded the story. It was more like he just kind of kept picking up ideas and and throwing it out there, right? Right. And this is what is so great about the whole Interdependency series as a whole. It is such a neat story and it's a fine example of trilogies, which I think is not as common anymore. What part is not common? I just mean like... It, I mean how neat it was. I don't mean trilogies as a whole. Oh, okay. I mean that like, it's like here are all the conflicts, right? And here and are over the course of these three books, they will be resolved. <laughs> yeah, and it's so neatly like chunked up into separate. Like it's so neatly divided. Um, yeah, like phase one, phase two, phase three are all very distinct from each other. The only book series that I have read recently that I think is encaptures that as well is the Red Rising series. Oh, totally. They yeah. have a very clear divide between the books and a very clear, like, this is this plot. This is, like, this is this action. Right. Um, it's very much, um, it's very clean. Right. And that was kind of reminiscent uh, here in this book where there's only really, like, there's, a, like you said, there are stories that we that could be told, novellas or something, or short, like a, I could very easily see, like, a book that's just a series of short stories about various perspectives, like, over the next 300 years. Yeah. That would actually, that would be excellent. I would really enjoy that. Yeah. Actually, please do that, Skullsy. Yeah, that's, Skullsy, you can just have that one. (laughs) Especially with the pace he writes. I mean, he could do that in, like, a couple hours. Yeah, if if he sat down and wrote a short story a day and, like, also worked on his other stuff, he he could put out, like, a real cool novel in a week. Yeah, that could be, like, his break. <laughs> it's, it's casual. His mid-morning break is writing yeah. <laughs> short stories for this book. I just, I think, actually, if I was an author, that would be pretty fun. Of like, Writing I built short this stories really, about your universe? Yeah, I built this really rich universe, and I'm just going to write a series of short stories that, like, don't have to, like, have this great, brilliant plot, you know, moving through it. It's just like, yeah, this is kind of fun. Yeah, people are reading this just because they're curious about the universe. I don't have, like, the pressure of having to create a super intricate like action-packed like i don't have to create that many characters like it's it's pretty easy work i would think i can immediately forget about them the second they're not on the page <laughs> right no i'm I, we're probably oversimplifying actually i bet that creating characters for short stories is really challenging because you need to be able to make people care about them really quickly <laughs> oh that's not something i thought of this is why i'm an engineer and not a writer <laughs> it's just, that's the only reason that's it well i can't think of another one <laughs> That's your problem. Lack of imagination. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. We are oversimplifying that, but I could see that being an enjoyable experience for someone. Yeah. No, I imagine it is a good way to stretch your stretch your legs, so to speak, especially since, like, so much of sci-fi and fantasy is built in these fantastic worlds. And I imagine that so much about those worlds is known by the author but cut from the books so it would be a really great way to sort of communicate those aspects that didn't quite make it into the book they couldn't quite figure it out but it's sort of this fun side thing that it wasn't really relevant but i know that it's going on in this universe so i'm gonna share it that's an interesting thought i've never it's never occurred to me before is how much is the author thinking about like what is going on in that universe in any given book that, like, either hasn't been brought up in the books yet or won't be brought up in the books. That is not something I thought about before. Yeah. And it's going to bother me when I read now. <laughs> what aren't you telling us? <laughs> what secrets do you hold? <laughs> well, it's like, um... It's like Tolkien. That's basically what Tolkien did. He wrote that one 
like trilogy of books that was a beautiful story and then everything else was just filling out the mythology i guess that's true yeah scalzi the token of our time <laughs> i wonder how tolkien and scalzi would feel about that i bet one would feel very different than the other i am willing to bet <laughs> <laughs> i feel like as an author i'd be pretty thrilled to be compared to tolkien yeah no matter what kind of books you're writing yeah exactly so one of the things that i thought would be good to talk about is kiva's evolution during this book yeah for sure and i think it, it definitely began in consuming fire but it it really hit its it really resolved and like became clear that kiva's new direction in life in this book so what we kind of the thing we're talking about here is uh, Kiva underwent a realization that she couldn't be a freeloader anymore. Is essentially is the way it was worded <laughs> in the book. Now, to be fair to Kiva, she always contributed, but she just you know for her own gain and for her own reputation. But I was thinking she contributed in her house, but like what was well, her yeah. house really contributing? Like Citrus. It, okay, but it, it is very easy if the government is mandating your monopoly hold to hold a monopoly. Yeah. That's true. Like, as a business, you don't have to do anything, which is the whole point. Like, that that was the whole reason why they were able to win over all of the you know business magnates when they built the interdependency was, hey, do you want a really reliable source of income forever? Here you go. Right, exactly. So, like... That's true. I wasn't thinking of the Nobel families as straight-up freeloaders. I mean, obviously, I wasn't cool with the whole Monopoly model, but you are right. They're right, basically, like, they, they have no reason this. to innovate. Yeah. And that's that's the whole problem with it. Um, In fact, I feel like the only innovation they do is to further lo- lock down their IP. Like, they were talking about um, the, like, hundreds of years of engineering um, on the Lagos family products. So that the seeds, seedlands will self-destruct or, or um, fail to produce after, like, a certain number of crops. Oh, yeah. Deter- dependent by- on the contract. Like, that, that is the quote-unquote innovation is just to make it harder for other people to access their things. Right, and apparently they made a new, like, a few new fruits. But, like, it just, it seems like the noble families really contributed nothing to the galaxy. <laughs> Basically. Nothing that couldn't have been done by someone else. Exactly. And someone else that was, like, actually working for it as opposed to some... They were just, like, sitting there being handed it. Right, exactly. That makes sense. So, the the realization that Kiva realized... There we go. Gotta finish that one. Hey. <laughs> is, uh, is, like, a really powerful statement in this book. And I think it's... I think she kind of knew what she was before. And she was never oh, necessarily... she definitely knew, yeah. She, yeah, she wasn't really a bad person. She was just, like, self-motivated. And didn't, like, go out of her way to harm people, it seemed, but, like, would definitely fuck you up if you got in her way. Right. But the, kind of the the changeover from actually trying to work to help people was a a powerful statement and a sharp contrast to what the other noble families were doing with Natasha, talking about how, like, they are, I mean, it was very, it was a very obvious contrast. Right. How, like, the noble families are the true spirit of the interdependency versus the people. Oh, yeah. And that was a... It was just, like, it was well done by Scalzi to see Kiva's realization that the people are what matter the inter- interdependency. 
just as Nadashi was sitting here convincing a bunch of noblemen, hey, you're the real important ones, guys. Totally. And what I love about Kiva is that she seems to have, like, no love of house loyalty. Um, Like, when Wolf was trying to renegotiate the contract, she's like, absolutely not. And they asked why. And she basically said, she's like, I'm responsible for these people. Like, yes, there are the the Kiva things of, I want to be good at my job. And, like, you're being a jackass and I'm not going to play with it. And But, like, it comes from this place of look, this is my house, technically, but it is my house, actually. <laughs> and all of the people who work for it are my responsibility, and I'm not going to let them get screwed over just because my name isn't Nahama Peen. Yeah, that's true. It is, but it uh, seemed like that was like almost an innate Kiva irreverence trait, you know what I mean? I think you're right. I just think that she hadn't necessarily had opportunities before now to either A... Uh, exercise that or be like she didn't have the external threat of civilization ending to motivate her to have this realization totally like that was certainly i don't think kiva would have had this realization if it wasn't for the catalyst of the end of civilization as we know it yeah i mean she didn't have anywhere to go really she was a younger child like a, a very like way down the line child in a house of like moderate importance it sounded like and she kind of was just going to live a life of luxury and, and minor responsibility and didn't really seem to like love that, but was going to be fine with it. It seemed like, um, and so, so it, it took, as you said, the catalyst of a needing to be responsible and b having the opportunity to be responsible and, like, that combination really helped her grow into a new role and a new sort of ethos. Yeah, and the person we see at the end of that transformation is, like, very much a badass who is, like, willing to do what she needs to do to help the people survive the horror that's coming. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this book series being so tidy. And, like, in some moments, I'm almost like, that's too tidy. But I can't deny that Meiji Kiva Emperor, like, she's the lady for the job. She is blunt. She is very effective. She is extremely strong. Like, nobody could run this situation as strongly as Kiva could. She is cutthroat. Like, no one can stand up against her, basically. Right. Right, like who's gonna who's gonna be able to overthrow Kiva? Basically nobody. Presumably nobody. Especially now that Nadashe is gone. Especially now that Nadashe is tied up as well. As well as anyone who could help her. So Yeah, so you're right. And she is the person for the job and you know, there's a question of whether or not Greyland could have done all that. I'm sure she could have. She seemed to be actually pretty badass herself. Yeah, she did. She was very much a different kind of strength to Kiva. That's true, and I think but still very strong. A lot of her strength came from knowing that people underestimated her. Yeah, and being able to use that. Right, she hardened much quicker than anyone else expected her to. Into and someone yeah. that could actually be an effective ruler. Um, but she also, as was mentioned in the book, she never really got the chance to show the people. They were just mad that she was upsetting status quo. Well, the people loved her. Uh, yes, yeah, so I guess I meant, like, the powerful people. Yeah, the powerful people 
where like she is different from other emperors, therefore she is bad for us. Which right. makes sense because if your whole universe revolves around having a monopoly and being like the priority for the government, then anyone who doesn't continue to do that those specific behaviors that you're used to is going to be seen as a threat. Right. I mean, and we can think about like there was a whole scene about how like the banks were moving their like their funds to end and like investing in short term investments versus long term investments, and like the idea of. Con- Institutions that were conservative by their own nature actually making moves to uh, to weather this coming threat. And I think that's part of the reason why Greyland was so hated is because it seems like any established institution will always be afraid of change. Like if you look <laughs> in the real world, um, the it's very obvious to, a, I feel like, a lot of regular people, hey... Um, Climate change is a major threat. Mm-hmm. Like we can use this as an example for our for the collapsing flow. Totally, yeah. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much that. Yeah. And so the many people start to our way of life all over the world are like, "Hey, this is a bad thing. We should do something about this." And like, at the end of the day, there's not so much that a average person can do. Even a group of average people, you need a pretty large amount. Yeah. Yeah, like, recycling is great and all, reducing your carbon footprint, fantastic, but, like, in the end, I mean, I, this is, like, a really dumb reference, there's an episode of Queer Eye, Peter, where they were were making over uh, uh, an individual who worked for a, um, like, an advocacy group for the environment. Okay. And... Uh, they were like, we biked here for the environment. And she was like, actually, it doesn't really matter if you drive a car <laughs> because like your car is going to make no difference compared to like all of the shipping and air travel and like all of those giant things that, that release a ton of um, carbon into the atmosphere. Like you driving your car is probably not the biggest deal. It's great if you want to ride a bike for so many reasons. And it's great to drive an electric car for so many reasons. But in the end, like, like, a person deciding not to drive, like, a gas guzzler is not, it's not going to change the world, sadly. <laughs> yes. I hate to tell you this, since you have an electric car. <laughs> no. I, I, no, I bought it knowing that. It, really, the buying no, an electric car is more so a support the industry that's trying to do something greener. Oh, totally, yeah. Which I 100% agree with how I that. approached it when I bought a car. Yeah. But my point is, is yes, <laughs> yes, like that's, that is even an extreme change to make to your life and it still is not going to, on its own, make the difference. Right. Yeah. If you got rid of your car and biked everywhere, that is a dramatic shift. Yes. But, uh. But everyone would have to do that for it to matter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The scale is really necessary. So that is the, so yeah, like companies that are kind of slow to make changes based on what seems to many many people the very obvious international threat of climate change mm-hmm. is kind of how i can what i compare the the nobility to in this because they are like it is so clear to everyone involved uh that this is happening and you know what would be really great not a coup like we need some <laughs> stability in the government but uh, no, they are so obsessed with their own power games and their own, you know, needs and wants that they can't put aside their 
their own little attempts at more profit and such to just accept someone that happens to be a little bit radical or like a little bit changey. That is like the wildest thing to me because I think that one thing this book doesn't cover and maybe it's because I haven't read the first one in a while maybe it's more clear in the first one is like what you get for being noble like I guess you know luxury freedom etc etc but like it's one of those things like why does Jeff Bezos care if he makes a single more dollar for the rest of his life like why are people who are extraordinarily rich so eager to get richer <laughs> when I'm looking at the the nobility, the interdependency, that's my question. I'm like, is that gonna help you when the world ends? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you hope to gain. Like the whole House of Wu plan, and they're like, oh, we're gonna get so rich off of this, and it's like, okay, but no, but intended. But to what end? Like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do with all that money? Especially when everything's squeezed and everyone's like stuck in that one system i mean i feel like it just belies a lack of imagination like they can't dream of of anything actually isn't that a line from um uh an absolutely remarkable thing it's the most boring dream a rich person can dream which is to get more money <laughs> uh i think you if that's on the line it's like close it's something it's very lines. similar to that line yeah it's it's that and i'm like guys guys <laughs> Guys, there's so much else going on. Why are you so determined to make a profit off of this right now? Like, how amoral do you have to be to not be like, oh, we're just going to do everything we can to make as many ships as we can to save as many people as we can? Like, how is it about profit? That's insane to me. Yeah, and I... I kind of... That, you're right, that the the profit thing being a weird angle... Like, I get the power games that they were playing, because at that point when you had as much money power is the difference you know accumulating sure. different types of power is okay fine whatever i i guess i i see that as your way forward of advancing in the world yeah that makes sense but like money on its own in a post-apocalyptic universe will not provide money or power <laughs> well we'll provide money that's about all it will provide <laughs> yes yeah exactly also i imagine when you're at the end at the at end and everyone's there with all their money inflation is gonna be a bitch I was I was just thinking about that. I was trying to figure that one out, like while I was talking. <laughs> Would inflation be a bitch? Because you're still gonna have. Well, yeah, you know what? I bet I bet inflation would be a bitch just because there would still be scarcity, and I feel like the cost of goods would go up a lot. Yeah, and you know, I guess inflation maybe not, but like runaway demand. Oh, for sure. You're going to have problems. That's the thing. It's like you move all the systems to hub, but you're still going to be really resource squeezed. Like, where are they going to get the resources, Peter? Where? Where? I mean, star systems have a lot of resources in them. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's... How many people is it? Tens of billions? Hundreds of billions? I think it was like 20 billion. Oh, that's not that many people. (laughs) That can't be 20 billion. That's not that many people. That's only like two and a half times as many people as we have. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't. I thought it was like twenty billion. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be, totally be wrong. You could be right because I mean, if everyone's living in habitats, that's like, what I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, twenty billion people. I feel like could be fine in a star, in a one star system. Yeah, and also you've got to remember that like no planets are habitable, so it feels like very likely a lot of the habitats that uh, they may be that looks like they're going to be moving to end eventually. A lot of the, those habitats are uh, 
are like agriculture. Oh yeah, no, that I'm not worried about. I'm talking about like raw materials. Oh, raw materials will be fine. I mean, like a star system's got a lot of materials in it. I mean, I don't know about how many planets and comets and everything else are in end end system, but there are a lot of the estimates on like a single iron rich asteroid in Earth, like Earth's solar system, mm-hmm. are like this could fuel iron needs for like years on Earth. I I think that maybe I'm just. I am, I have the wrong perspective because of having read uh, Heaven's River recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It's messed me up vis-a-vis resources. I also think there's a... I think just the scale of resources is like hard to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was it a conversation between Keeva and Cardinia where Keeva's like, it's going to be awfully crowded, and Cardinia's like, not really. It's space. <laughs> space is huge. <laughs> Yeah. And also, in Heaven's River, CZ, that solar system had a freaking mega structure in it that used all the resources. Yes. Well, it used all of one planet. I mean, sure. <clears throat> Not even all the resources. That's a fair point. So mega, you can make a mega structure with one planet. <laughs> and anything else you need with the rest. Another mega, a second mega structure. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you didn't see that one coming, huh? I accidentally built a second megastructure. Oh no. Oh golly. <laughs> what are we going to do with this one? <laughs> this is so embarrassing. <laughs> I guess we'll take it apart <laughs> for, for resources. <laughs> oh, but, you know, it occurs to me now. Hey, mm. um, you know how their plan was to uh, migrate like habitats? Yeah. Who's figuring that out now that Mars is gone? Okay, right? It does kind of seem like they're like, oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) I was thinking about this when I started the book. I was like, how did this book resolve? Because they definitely didn't, like, get to the point of doing all of that. And at the end, Cardinia's just like, well, we sent them all the information they need. So I guess all that stuff about Mars being the only flow physicist who could figure this out is not true or doesn't matter anymore. I mean, I guess the, the Mars... It's engineering problem now, isn't it? Yeah, and I think Mars is also like he could only he was the one that could figure it out because he had worked with it for years. Like everyone I guess else could the, catch up. All of the uh all of like the theoretical background work is done now, it seems like. Mars has proven that this theory is true. And therefore, um people can start to engineer based on that. I mean, they have no idea how to make us a bubble large enough to fit a habitat in. That seems like a theoretical problem. Yeah. But I bet in any given star system, they're probably... Like, well, and, Mars and you have to expand the shoal, right? Expand and move the shoal, yes. Why do you have to move the shoal? They were talking... Because you can't move the habitat. So they were Mars oh. is saying it's easier to move the shoal <laughs> yeah. to the habitat. <laughs> yeah. And scoop it up. That seems like a lot. Scoop. <laughs> scoop. <laughs> like... Gobble that gobble that habitat right up. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that the bubble is the smallest problem. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I, I I think what Mars figured out was a like unified theory <laughs> of flow physics. I'm just picturing like a vacuum cleaner tube. And that's also no, but like a cartoon one where the tube yes. expands as something goes along it. <laughs> yes. 
funny. Marcy would be so disappointed with that. Oh, Marcy seems like a chill guy. <laughs> I feel like he'd accept it as long as it was an accurate representation. <laughs> I, I suppose that's fair. Um, but anyway, so it seems like there's still a lot of theoretical work to be done. I know, especially since um, Hatid is gone. There's like no one else to do it. Okay, but like Mars even said, hey, there are other flow physicists that have like a much greater intuitive understanding of flow physics than I do. I just happen to have had the data longer. Yeah, that's true. He's not the greatest flow physicist of all time. He's just been working on this specific problem. Yeah, he's like even he's like my dad was like managed to see this from like ship math, like ship travel times and see this and figure it out. He was working from a data sets from his dad too. Yeah, right. So Mars was probably a good, but not overly remarkable flow physicist that just happened to have the right education. Yeah, totally. In education, he was providing to all flow physicists to prove his theory right. So, like, it seems like they probably could have figured it out. But I also feel like if I was Mars, I wouldn't have viewed it out until I knew it worked. Well, you know what is interesting, too? So I wanted to talk about um, the debate about the the flow data oh, that yes. GE found. The rupture data? Yeah, um, because I don't know if I don't know that the book made this clear. Maybe I just missed it, or maybe it's it's sort of vague. Um, but so so Cardinia and Mars have this argument where um, Cardinia is basically like, I just don't want that data out there, and so therefore I can't even give it to you. Um, to which Mars responds, No, 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 we'd never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that uh it is obvious even to us in 2020 that yes people can repeat the mistakes of the past 2021 excuse me um and will with gusto so uh, it definitely mars had a naive stance on that one what i'm a little confused about though is whether at the end cardinia sending all this information that mars had uncovered to all the systems is the same as broadly sharing the flow data it can't be right because that would have been addressed no i don't think she would have shared the rupture data no, it wasn't, like, the original rupture data, but, it, I mean, like, I wonder if the data that was shared could eventually lead to rediscovery of that technology. I suppose it's possible. I think it's more likely that uh, she shared with them Mars's like, theories and the theories being proven by... Because he had a data set, right? Like, he had a pretty comprehensive data set. He added on the infinitesimal flow streams he's seen. He was able to come up with this equation for evanescent flow, which is basically, I think, what we're, what his big realization was. Like an understanding of the behavior of evanescent flow streams. Right. And he was able to come up with this theory because of the rupture data. But I think all the data proving his theory are, is all just evanescent flow observations. Right. So I think he's probably okay. Yeah, okay, that's probably true. I, th I think that she probably just shared the evidence and flow data, the pre-existing flow data, like, not the not the rupture, but, like, the, you know, ship data and all. Yeah. And then the, uh, then, the, like, the equations that were developed as a result. Yeah. So, I mean, in that, in that debate, I, I feel like I mostly side with Cardinia, except I have a hard time understanding why she wouldn't share it with Mars and just be like, this is only for you. Well, I mean, she did. Never let this go. Yes, I know she did eventually, but she didn't originally. <laughs> she didn't even tell him it existed. Uh, that's, yeah, so that's a good point. I think the, I don't know, I think the, I think she was just afraid. Like, I think that's a lot of fear to have about that data. Yeah, it's, it's 
definitely once you let it out, it's like Pandora's box. Especially once you know what happened as a result. Like, civilization almost died in the free systems. Civilization is dying, yes, currently in the free systems. That's true, I mean, all this is a result of the rupture, so like... Right, it almost died once, and now it actually will die. Yeah, so I, I... I think there's just, like, a being frozen in fear and, you know what, if I don't give it to anyone, like, I can't be held responsible for anything that happens. Yeah. Well, that was also a conversation, um, was whether Cardinia would be responsible if she failed to save everybody. And I think that that's, like, it's such an unfair frame to put on her. Because <laughs> um, obviously she's not at fault for the flow collapse at all. But it's like, if she made mistakes, and if she didn't manage to do it, is that, like, her responsibility? That's definitely how history would remember her, right? Like... The person who failed to save... Yeah, we see that all the time. Like, people that happen to preside over disaster. That's true, man. And the only saving grace that those people have are how they responded. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, we see, um... I think a, of a recent example, uh, the advent of World War II and Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain like is remembered very poorly as a prime minister because of how he handled the oncoming threat of the Nazis. Yeah. And by that, I mean didn't. <laughs> by handled, I mean ignored. <laughs> ignored at all costs, right. <laughs> and you know, it's not like he... I mean, there's historical nuances to whether or not the british were in any way responsible for the quick control of the nazi party um but he didn't create condition no i guess they did hold on (laughs) neville chamberlain didn't (laughs) personally go to hell neville chamberlain (laughs) create conditions that led to the rise of the nazi party britain did neville chamberlain (laughs) didn't necessarily Neville Chamberlain, as an individual human, is not responsible for the uh, Holocaust. But <laughs> could he have done more to prevent it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's that, that'll be it. I mean, then the next person to come up, uh, Churchill is remembered extremely well by history for responding well in a very bad situation. Right. Yeah. So, that's true. You know, I think Cardinia would have been remembered very poorly if she had not been able to do something to see this coming. To, to push That's actually off. especially true of sovereigns, I would think, because um, you could say the same for George the Sixth, I believe, who was king during World War Two. Is that he was very he was very beloved, even though obviously he has basically no power over um, Britain's success or failure during the war. Right. Um, he is very fondly remembered for the way he like showed solidarity and and sort of managed the nation's morale during that time as well. That's true. When you see someone that is the the physical incarnation of your government, yeah, that's a very uh, appropriate response to have to, it. especially in the case of the independency where you are an absolute monarch. Yeah, yeah, Cardinia has that symbolism and that uh, actual power to do something. Exactly. So I can see why uh, that would have a greater impetus on it, kind of to like, like I'm sure the executive committee doesn't have this. But Cardinia sure does. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one thing we haven't really discussed that much with this series, although I could be wrong, is that um, that perspective of a sovereign uh, and their responsibilities and their choices they have to make, but like from the point of view of an outsider, basically, of essentially a common person, 
having to learn to make those decisions has always been one of the really good things about these books. Um, oh, Cardinia, who and the way she a commoner. Y- yeah, and, like, the way she uses the memory room and, like, debates all her various decisions and really thinks them out. Like, I love seeing her kind of come to these conclusions. And, um, like, I, I always loved the way she used the divine association of the emperor. Um, I think that that was always really clever. And, I don't know, just, like, seeing her decide, okay, these are extraordinary times. I need to basically make extraordinary decisions and be comfortable with that. And... I think it's really, she's a very admirable character because she makes these decisions and she's like, okay. Like, I feel like the only time that she balks is with the rupture data. And I don't mean in giving it to Mars. I mean in not giving it to Mars. Right. I think the, I think what really makes that kind of a a critical part of her character, that part about being from as a commoner is mm-hmm. like I feel like if you are raised with the expectation that you will be emperor when your parent dies, you are. I feel like you get a certain you get a certain sort of significant degree of cockiness. Like, well, I've been bred for this my entire life. My decisions can't be wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. And Cardinia is so very much aware of the fact that every one of her decisions needs to be analyzed to the umpteenth degree. Because she really can't afford major missteps. Yeah. I mean, every misstep could result in the deaths of billions. Yeah. And that, Including her. Right. And that <laughs> scares the shit out of her. Yeah, she cares about that. Right. The, I like to think that most rulers would care about that. Although, apparently, most of the nobility does not care about that. So. Yes. Well. I mean, it definitely got under my skin... It, like the way they were talking about, well, you know, what is the interdependency? We are the interdependency. We're what matters. We're the culture and the refinement and blah 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 blah. This is very uh, very disturbing. I mean, the thing that always got me about like rich people being like, well, we have to go save ourselves and create a utopia for ourselves. I'm like, you guys know work still has to happen, right? <laughs> Who's gonna work for you? So true, Peter. Great point. It's always bothered me. Also, talk about inflation. The only people going to end are a bunch of nobles. <laughs> right. Could you imagine? Can you imagine what they'll charge to clean the bathroom? <laughs> so much. Your entire fortune. <laughs> That's hilarious. They're just trading it's back a, fortunes so they can make each other clean the bathrooms. So one of the comparisons I was thinking of about the rupture data is I feel like it's like the future equivalent of atomic weapons. And... I, mm. I mean that in a couple of levels. So, on one hand, uh, it is a terrifying weapon that was used as to be the period of a sentence in a conflict. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Right, like it was like a cold, kind of cultural-ish war, as far as we can tell, with the free systems, the assembly, and Earth. And the free systems doing, using the rupture device, I think the, the resonator, they called it, was such a a dramatic move and <laughs> one that couldn't be taken back. And I think a lot about that as the advent of nuclear weapons on Earth. When the U.S. Yeah, you can't unring that bell. Right. When the U.S. nuked Japan twice, like that was the first time nuclear weapons have been used in anger. And thankfully the last time. But like now anyone that goes and like is deciding whether or not to nuke an enemy doesn't have to struggle with, well, I'm the first. Like, I... 
I fear very much the fact that no one else has to deal with being the one to ring the bell and bring nuclear weapons onto the stage as an acceptable means of warfare. Well, but on the other hand, something has taken that place, which is mutually assured destruction. Basically, there's nobody who we would nuke right now who couldn't nuke us back. That's true, but there are certainly enemies, and as time goes on, it becomes more and more of a threat. There are enemies who can gain access to nuclear weapons who will not give a shit if they, we nuke them back. Yeah, that's true. Like, whether it's not caring about their people and they'll get out, whether it's fanaticism, whatever. And that, that's the fear. And that's kind of the biggest argument why I see Cardina being totally in the right of being afraid to give even Mars the rupture data. Because at one point, a bunch of smart flow physicists got together and had this idea mm-hmm. and executed the idea. And theoretically, I feel like you don't become a flow physicist to become rich. So, like, theoretically, they were, <laughs> you know, people that were pursuing science for the sake of science, wanting to gain a better understanding of the world. And that's a, a such a fine goal. So at the yeah. core, people that went out into the world to do fine, good things created a weapon that nearly destroyed billions of lives. And she can look at Mars and go, you are a fine, good man. But like, you also But you share, might come up with something dangerous. Right, you share so many qualities with the men who created the Resonator. How can I be so sure that if you come up with something, it won't be buried properly because you're a scientist and you want to share knowledge. Right. And you might not be able to bury it. I mean, like I said, like at the end of the book, they still needed to throw out, you know, into the universe, all this information that Mars had uncovered. And again, like that could lead to a rediscovery of the rupture and, or something else, something worse, potentially even, although it's hard to conceive. Um, Using the data to manipulate a flow shoal and putting a star into the flow. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. Like that was, I hate that. That was just off the dome. Like, there was, was, there was, yeah, it was very easy to destroy star systems. Yeah. I mean, but there's also very cool things you could do. Like, you could, you know, create flow streams, like, to just for travel and exploration. I mean, there there's a lot of good that can come from it, but I think that a lot of um, a lot can be justified by thinking, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will, and that you know, then they'll they'll be a less responsible person. You know what I mean? Like, well, if if America hadn't hadn't developed nuclear weaponry, then somebody else could have, and then what would they have done with it? You know, like the Nazis worked on it too. What if the Nazis had done it? Um, I mean, we're literally well, months away from then. developing nuclear weapons at the end of the war. Like, Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, well, granted, they weren't the ones who we used them on. <laughs> the point still stands. Like, it is true that if we hadn't developed it, well, it, somebody else was developing it, is my point. And, like, I wonder if that would still exist, though, in the universe of this book, because the interdependency is united and isolated like they don't really have external threats their external threat is a natural disaster and that's it yeah they don't really have a reason to develop something like that 
Yeah, and I mean, maybe that will change now that everyone's going to end. Um, you would think it would be harder to be external, but I, I don't know. I think there will probably be a lot of people who think they got a raw deal and are angry or, you know, I mean, plus the fact have that an axe to grind for whatever reason. They're talking about people moving their, like, making their way to end over decades or centuries. Right. That's right. Pl- and, uh, plenty of time for other governments to prop, kind of crop up. Yeah, yeah, as the sort of, the, the the rule of the interdependency collapses, sort of ahead of the flow, it sounds like, because it, it does sort of sound like that's what's expected to happen. The The government body will sort of cease to function as more and more systems drop out of touch. Right. And it is a little bit at the end, like, okay, well, they have all the information, they're kind of on their own. Like, we'll send them what help we can, but it's up to them to make this happen. Right, we'll come for them eventually, but... Not not even that. I feel like at the end, they're kind of like, they, they need to figure it out. <laughs> I, I kind of thought the plan was, because the route to end was through Hub. That's true. And I thought the plan was everyone to make their way through various evidence and flows to Hub, and then work their way to end. Right, but maybe it's more it's up to them to get here yes yeah it's up to them to get here because they can't do anything like they can't get them here flows are one way true yeah the only alternative would be to go and fetch them which obviously they don't have the means to do right and so it's a it is kind of curious to see what will happen when everyone's at end yeah i mean i'd I'd be i would be interested to see if we can find that out short story Short stories, come on. Come on, Scuzzy. Uh, <laughs> come on, Scuzzy. What, what are you doing <laughs> with your time? <laughs> I've been sneezing out novels. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about with the rupture data yeah. was um, kind of the... Th- this is, again, a comparison to nuclear weapons. Here we go again. Peter's uh, <laughs> on about nuclear weapons <laughs> You know me and my my advocacy for nuclear proliferation. <laughs> it's one of my defining character traits, people say. Yep, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, it's actually in the podcast description. It's, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the... One of the details I thought was very interesting is Mars talking about the level of understanding that the free systems flow physicists had about the flow. Mm-hmm. And how, like... It was so, so incredibly thorough and advanced in very certain and specifically applicable areas. <laughs> it was very applied right. knowledge, basically. In other ways, was completely naive and had no understanding of, like, the real behavior behind the flow. Like, the fact that the flow had a frequency or that it's a liquid, whatever that means. <laughs> so the... I kind of thought of that as an interesting comparison to, like, nuclear weapons, where it was, like, it doesn't take a whole lot to do that. <laughs> like, as far as theoretically understanding what? is concerned. <laughs> like, yeah, it's complicated and hard, but, like, today that's very fundamental. What, knowing how nuclear weapons yeah, work? Yeah, the, the principles behind... Knowing that splitting an atom will release... Right, the principles behind a runaway nuclear reaction today are thoroughly understood to an extent i mean as much as we can but like compared to then 100 percent, we got locked yeah but like all the stuff about controlling nuclear reactions was 
oh, you know, they had a general understanding of it. They had research labs, but like the, a modern nuclear plant design would be leagues ahead of what they had then. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> yes, but like kind of the point I was, I'm thinking about is like, it seems like, as you said, the flow physicists of the free systems had a very uh, solid, fun, like applied understanding of the concept and nuclear weapons was how to make it explode. And <laughs> now we are like, well, we have all these weird like, oh, but if we use this type of fuel, we can you know, get this kind of reaction or we can have these kind of products from the reaction that are more stable. And like, there's so many more nuances and more details available. And it's like. We didn't really need, and honestly, like, nuclear weapons have advanced, but like, they no one's really making like lead, cutting edge. Uh, right. I, the Russians that are, you know, but the of. U.S. aren't <laughs> really. Well, uh, some people are. Uh, some people are. But like, I just we've got quantity. We don't need quantity. I think once we got the hydrogen bomb down, we were like, all right, and we're good. <laughs> like, and we have peaked. Yeah, we don't really need more destructive weapons than like like more something more destructive than could blow up the entire Earth tens of times overs like <laughs> we're good there C- hold on could it what yeah in what sense like the new u.s nuclear stockpile is enough to cover oh, turn oh the- our entire arsenal yeah i thought you were referring to i think you were saying that we could build a bomb in theory that would blow up i mean almost Earth. certainly but like we probably could it's probably just a matter of adding fuel right? yeah it's just like more more boom <laughs> more boom or putting them just a couple feet away from each other. And <laughs> Actually, the really hard off. part of that is making it not blow Nuclear up dominoes. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the way the the warheads work is it's like a nearly critical but not really critical mass. And then they punch in enough fissile material to make it critical. And then it explodes. Ah, like a glow stick. I mean, not dissimilar to a glow stick, yes. <laughs> but like the glow is Break really Break and powerful. shake, baby. <laughs> The biggest glow. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. I and, and honestly, these are kind of a hopeful way to look at it because it seems like in in this in this analogy, we got pretty much the weaponry side of it locked down. And to be fair, the rupture is probably about as weaponized as you can uh, as you can. As far as you can go down the weaponized uh, flow destruction. Until you're path. moving flow shoals and capturing ships that don't have their their bubble up, oh and using God. flow shoals as weapons. Now I'm picturing like a hydra. <laughs> That's crazy. That's insane. Um, but in terms of weaponized flow destruction, but yeah, I guess you you might be just dismantling my point, which was trying to be that, you know, now that they've they've gone, they've mastered the weaponized version of it. Maybe, uh, maybe they can come up with like a you know more positive and constructive version of how to use this data. But <laughs> apparently, there are lots of destructive paths they haven't gone down yet. Apparently, I'm great. It's not quite as one to one as a uh, nuclear. It actually, I have a um, example from the world of bio, which is that um, while you know, we developed antibiotics early in the 20th century in the Western world. Once the Iron Curtain fell, uh, the Western world continued to make more and more antibiotics and discover more and more antibiotics. And in the meantime, um, the Soviet bloc went down the path of phage therapy, where you basically use bacteriophages to um, destroy bacteria, to hunt the bacteria themselves. I've read so about you basically. This. 
You have read about yeah. this? Yeah, it's cool, right? So basically, you have an infection, a bacterial infection, and and you give the bacteria an infection <laughs> <laughs> to to kill them. That's so that that falls great in like in line with that Soviet Russia joke where it's like in Soviet Russia, like we infect you bacteria. <laughs> we infect bacteria. That's really funny. Um, <laughs> I think when I read that but, it was like viruses. But, like there was this book about like viruses and pathology. I feel like, the viruses. What, I feel. I feel like you oh. recommended it to me. By Carl Zimmer, I think. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, but yeah, so I always love um, scientific problems that, in different arenas, like entirely different solutions were were uh, invented. Yeah, and that's like, so I, That's one of my favorite things. Yeah, <laughs> so that's what it makes what it makes me think of. And you know, I think they're, I think one of the best arguments against continuing weaponizing the flow is to survive a the fall of civilization like yeah i mean that's definitely the priority like it's just it seems like if by if people are still around in the free system in the interdependency to be uh thinking about making a resonator it has been long enough that it's probably a good like they've survived like the civilization <laughs> survived this and i guess it's time for them to figure out how um, up in the mass destruction work again. Oh. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, you I mean, you and you it. won't need a resonator again until you are once more connected to to the wider universe, right? Right. I mean, I guess there will continue to be evanescent flow streams, but they won't be like reliable modes of transportation. No, unless they figure out a way to make the flow stream. Yeah, unless they come up with like flow stream stabilizers or something, which they might. That's funny. I think about that as like, like gas stabilizers. Like what? Like gasoline stabilizers. <laughs> oh. Like you put it in your car. Like I'm gonna need it now that the uh, the office electric charger is gonna be put in. Yay! And so I'm gonna need to like not because I'm not gonna use my gas for long enough. Or I'm gonna need to put stabilizer in my car. Oh, that's cute. It's good. It's good. Love that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's good stuff. That was the analogy I immediately thought of when you were like flow stream stabilizers. I'm like, yeah, like. <laughs> hey you just squirt that in there you keep it good for longer i was picturing like a scaffold personally <laughs> <laughs> a really big scaffold this is a very image dense episode <laughs> listen to us paint pictures with our paint words. pictures <laughs> word pictures <laughs> <laughs> um i think we should talk a little bit about cardinia's final move her final play um and putting off a coup for only so long yeah, I I think that among the many reasons I admire Cardinia, like one of them is sort of her ability to fa- face courageously the truth, and she is able to be like, okay, well they are going to win at some point. And granted, Raquel, aka Memory Room, really help her with this, but like she takes it <laughs> when, when her ancestors are like, yeah, you're kind of screwed. She's like, well, all right. I guess I am, but how can I use that? Like, how can I maneuver that? Um, and I guess she almost wasn't able to if it wasn't for Genevieve convincing Gigi that, or Raquel rather, that um, she kind of had a responsibility to to uh, uh, Greyland to give her this option, give her this out. Yeah, I thought that but, was a um, very excellent uh, kind of reveal. The way that they revealed Raquel? Yeah. Yeah, it was very good. 
They do that a lot with Genevieve. <laughs> there was the way his identity was revealed, and now it's the way Raquel's identity <laughs> that's was true. revealed. That's true. There's now two times they've done that with Genevieve. It's basically the same play. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I bet he felt real good about doing that after Cardinia did to him. It's like turning it around. You know he was thinking about it, too, because he literally mentioned that later in the conversation. <laughs> He's like, yeah, Cardina did the same thing to me. <laughs> How's it feel? Woo. Now, it, it does make me curious how that process works versus the, like, net, neural network that the other... Because it seems like the, the, like, the seed and, like, the neural net that all the emperors have are, like, is just basically so Raquel can see the world. And also do her... So can she actively see what's going on, like, as they go about their business? Or is it just all uploaded after the No, fact? it's, like, uploaded, like, daily. Oh, okay. There, there are regular uploads. Like, one one point she was saying... I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it keeps backing up. Yeah, she had a conversation up. with uh, Cardinia about it. And she was like, yeah, um... You know, she's... And Cardinia was like, well, I guess you know what I'm thinking. And Raquel said, well, no, but in a few hours I will. <laughs> That's funny. Well, she was threatening her. I don't think that was what happened with though. <laughs> uh so oh, the anyway um but i wonder like what process chenevere and raquella had to undergo to do this because it seems like the neural network was just a a so raquella could do her like puppet show thing and b uh so raquella can keep track of the interdependency i wonder if it's just a matter of like compacted data is is like the memories um where they kind of like cut out i don't know you know way more about computers than me but i'm saying like they cut out sort of like the finer details versus um like having literally everything like i feel like a a a full upload would require more hard drive space is what i'm saying (laughs) among other things i guess i guess that makes sense if you gotta capture whatever that spark of self people have is like, whatever yeah, the difference between in... consciousness and non-consciousness. Yeah, because Genevieve says something about seeing it in Raquel's code. Like, recognizing life in Raquel's code. I think he was recognizing himself in Raquel's code. Like, I think he was seeing that this is so similar to what he is. Right. I... That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I see. Is that there are, there are aspects of Raquel's code that give that spark of life. I mean, of course, because she's a computer intelligence, so that's the only way that could work. But, um... I can't imagine looking at code that represented consciousness. Yeah, but, like, I guess I'm wondering why it's more expensive, <laughs> theoretically, <laughs> than, like, than what the past emperors have done. Or is it just that um, it, the interdependency they believe, or like the emperors believe that that technology has been lost? I don't think that they thought that Or they don't believe that it existed. exists. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is, right? Because Chenevere, like, was thought to be something different when Cardinia met him. Right, and Cardinia, uh, within Raquel, sorry, was talking about how, like, yeah, a researcher, like, found this technology, and then I ordered it, like, secret, and... I just had it. I had it I had built for me. me. Yeah. Although I do wonder, I feel like my first act as like Emperor after Raquella would be would be like go and fight all the shit Raquella made secret. I don't understand <laughs> how smart. anyone that becomes a head of state or like a, like anything like that is not immediately like, well, I'm gonna go find all the secrets. <laughs> Tell me everything. 
Well, but on the other hand, that would have been one of Raquel's children. So maybe, I mean, Raquel was a mass manipulator. I'm sure she made them think that she had told them all the secrets. Yeah. Whether it was even like in a, oh, look, you accidentally discovered this. Oh, no. (laughs) Sort of a way. I guess that's fair. And I I can't really know unless I was like actually one of Raquel's children. But I feel like I wouldn't believe her. I'd be like, just to be sure, give me all of Raquel's secrets. Well, okay, but then how do you explain people who get into a relationship with serial cheaters? Like, people will assume it's different for them. Uh, Because people are stupid. Including Raquel's children. Apparently. (laughs) I thought she would have raised by the kids, but okay. (laughs) But, and also, who's going to find out all of Raquel's secrets? I mean, I guess... First of all, Raquel probably disappeared, anyone who ever knew. (laughs) She wasn't cruel, but she was ruthless. I suppose it's fair. Um, it's a noteworthy difference. So she went with the Pharaoh approach, probably. <laughs> um, or if that person just happened to be dead when Raquela died. I suppose it's fair. Wink or no wink, either way. <laughs> then I don't know. I, I see your point, though. I, it would have been a wise move. Uh, but the. I imagine the... I, I get why she was like, yeah, we didn't want everyone else to do this. Because, like, I feel like the interdependency clearly had the wealth to make this... Right. Anyone could have done this. Like, any emperor Well, did they at this. the beginning? I am sure they did. I mean, the Wu's oh, were a massive oh, you mean family. For the emperor, not, like, for anyone who wanted to. No, no, to. like, yeah, for every emperor to do this. And it just makes me think that, like, the... She was really dead on about, like, the, the fucking grim, creepy vibe that would be put off of, like, this room full of deceased emperors. <laughs> like, it's weird enough when you think it's, like, a program emulating them. It would be so much worse if it was a bunch of them actually consciously there. Yeah, that would be pretty grim. Uh, it'd be weird. I don't like that. Well, you know what, too? It would totally get messy, because, like... Yeah. Any emperor who, like, had a great love would be like, oh, well, I want, you know, my spouse to, to get it, too. And it would just, like, grow and grow and grow. Yeah, <laughs> like, or an I emperor mean? that was obsessed with their power and their own ego and demanded to keep being a ruler. To try to continue ruling. Totally. Totally. It would not have been able to be controlled. Yeah. So it was wise of Raykello to isolate that technology. I yeah. think Cardinia I mean, is could, a worthy could... successor to it. Yes, I think so. I like the dynamic of Greyland and Cardinia. There's like very different people, but they're both I mean they both have the core motivation of like wanting the people of the interdependency to be safe. Um Grey or Card excuse me. Did I say Greyland and Cardinia? Yeah, although I, I was so into what you were talking about. <laughs> you knew what I was saying that I was talking about Raquel. No, no, I like the idea of uh, talking about the relationship. Greyland and Cardinia. Greyland and Cardinia. Well no, I, we can talk about that. I think that I, I love that the book points out um, that there is Greyland and there is Cardinia. And <laughs> Mars is like, when Cardinia laughed in my face, that was Greyland. That was Greyland laughing in my face. And I think that that's like such a, probably a very helpful way of looking at it and a helpful way to have, for lack of a better term, like work-life balance. And, <laughs> and a very emotionally have... mature response. Totally. It was very, first of all, it was very insightful of Mars. But um, also the fact that she manages herself that way is uh is is very productive i would say yeah when like they talk about how she like 
clearly undergoes a transformation when she's like becoming Greyland. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. It actually, it kind of reminds me of the crown. Uh, you should watch it. <laughs> if you already. But you see a lot of that um, pictured in the crown. And I mean, I imagine that for any good and emotionally healthy sovereign, you would have to do that. It would have to be a necessity because there is such a demand on your royal person that your like human person can't carry it. Like you have to sort of split yourself that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Did you want to talk um, about Graylin or Cardinia and uh, Raquela? Yeah, sure. I was, <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Um, I I think that. You know, obviously, Raquel also has the motivation of wanting to be the person in charge. But I always got the vibe from her that it was like, I have to do this because no one else is really up to it. And obviously, it will be great to also have power and wealth. <laughs> like, I'm not going to pretend that wasn't a part of her, th- her motivation. But, um, you know, like for, for all the power and wealth she got, she seemed to have been a very competent ruler um, and created this this extremely stable monoculture for a thousand years like that's incredible like imagine how do you keep a society unified like that for a thousand years i mean it's a good model it's a very strong right imagine if rome stood until 1200 and the thing is too that should be noted it's like okay is the interdependency built on a lie yes is it essentially a feudal system without free uh uh, free what free market. market yes that that one yes um also yes but it is pointed out, like, the people of the interdependency are living as good a life as, quote-unquote, like, common working-class people have ever lived. They are all well-educated. They are all taken care of healthcare-wise. Like, it, they're pretty much fine. Like, it doesn't seem like there's any real true societal ills. Like, yeah, the nobles play their, their power games, and that's not great for the common people, but, like... It doesn't really seem to have that much ripple effect. So there's sort of this implication that there, or maybe I'm just like conditioned to think of it this way, but it seemed like I was looking for a reason there was something wrong with the interdependency as it stood and they could kind of couldn't find one. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, like you said, there's, there's definitely certainly flaws to the system, but like yeah. overall the kind of the nobles realize it's easier to rule over a class of people that are like well-educated so they're useful workers and also like taken care of like if you're going to oppress and like you know uh take them for every dime they you can they're going to rise up and the nobles and to an extent the you know uh the founding generations were like let's not do that that's going to lead to revolt and this is not a stable path forward well, they also, like, it was a small point, but they were like, you can't have people living in enclosed systems and be idiots or desperate. That's a good point. Like, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> like, that's going to lead to disaster for everyone involved. Like, people need to be content and and well-informed. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. But I will point out, there is not a single common person in this book. I would argue... That, um, oh, shoot. The only thing I can think of is maybe Nafa Naf- from the first one. Uh, Nafa, yes. But I'm trying to think of who is... But she's in the book for like five minutes. The lawyer that Kiva 
Oh, Senia. Senia. Senia Fanapana. That's true. Senia's, like, upper working class. Yeah, I mean, she's, like, a well-educated... It. It's funny to think of, like, a lawyer for, like, a major corporation as being working class. The common person, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess in, in this scenario, I mean, uh, Nafa was the daughter of, like, parliamentarian, so she was not not from a place of privilege. That's true, too, yeah. I guess Senia's probably... Yeah, she might be, like, the most everyman of anyone in this book. But we don't really get that much from her. She's essentially a supporting role for Kiva. I mean, she's great. She's competent. She's smart. She's funny. I love her. But, like, we don't really get much of her in her monologue. Right, she's a tool for Kiva's development and not... Uh, right, not exactly. Her, not not really a character, character in her own right. Yeah. yeah, she would have been a one-off if it wasn't for her relationship with Kiva. So... Um, yeah. So, I mean, we kind of just have to take the, the narrator's word for it, is my point, <laughs> that that everyone in the interdependency is more or less fine. Yeah. Though I think that would have been a thing for Cardinia, though. Like, if if, that ha- if, if they not... weren't fine. Like, not maybe not perfect, but, like, their lives are fine. They have, you know, a, a decent universal basic health. Like, they even talked about they have a universal basic income. Do they? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a progressive dream. Right. It is as ideal Except for the monarch thing. Except for, except for the authoritarian government. Except for the absolute monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and theocracy, excuse me. And theocracy. Absolute theocratic monarchy, yes. Uh, so the, you know, yeah, there's there's flaws to the system, but overall, honestly, pretty, pretty stable. Seems fine. As far as, uh, as, far as like, feudalistic uh, future governments hey, go, I think it seems like it's going pretty the well rulers for rulers are chill... Monarchy is an ideal form of government. And I will say that forever. <laughs> but that assuming is, uh, it is false. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> it will never be true. Yeah. <laughs> That's the but problem. But if like, all the rulers could be Cardinia, monarchy is a perfect form of government. Well, and you know what, too? It, it, it's a big if, right? Because the interdependency is a great idea and works awesome, except for when the flotation collapses, except for when Dal Cisla happens, like it ceases to work <laughs> when this um, natural structure breaks down. Right. It seems like it only works when there's no external threat. Well, I don't think I, I, I I'm just saying that um, they weren't prepared to deal with it. There was no backup plan. It was all completely based on the existence of the flow. And because it had never fallen apart in in recorded memory, um, they couldn't anticipate it. It's not really their fault. But once it had happened, like for the rest of the duration of the interdependency, people probably thought in the back of their minds, well, like, that could be a Dallas Cisla. (laughs) Could end up in that situation and that would be terrible. Yeah, I just mean like I think the interdependency is a terrible system if there's anyone else in the world, like in the government in the galaxy that can access you. Like That's true cuz they could just like go and start picking off habitations that um Yeah, like if you go take over the food system. Yeah, that's true. It's very vulnerable in yeah. that sense. It's vulnerable to external attack. So like I think change like, and like it's a, it's very vulnerable to any sense of change of the status quo. The flow collapses. Yes someone invades whatever but did create a very stable status quo for the time that it was around i mean again thousand years the longest years like there's no empire empire in you know real earth history that's ever lasted a thousand years and they talk about too how there were bad emperors and like 
obviously there's always going to be bad monarchs. Um, There were lots of, I guess, moments where it could have been strained, but it was fine. Like the system was basically perfect and it, it apparently could have gone on forever as far as we can tell. If it wasn't for the collapse of the flow. That one little issue, yes. What'd you say? That one little issue. Oh, the one little issue. Okay. Alright, I think that's pretty much everything, Peter. What do you think? Uh, yeah, my, I think my checklist is pretty much uh, checked. Yeah. Well, um, in that case, let us know what you guys thought about the book, and now that we finished it, the whole series... Um, I have decided that for our next book, I would like to revisit the Wayfarers trilogy. Um, the next book in that series is A Closed and Common Orbit. It's the sequel. What? I mean, I don't even know if I would call it a sequel. It's technically a sequel to The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Um, in that there are characters who cross over, but it's, it's pretty much a standalone story. So even if you haven't read that book. If I recall correctly, you can read this one, and it will spoil aspects of the first book, but you will know what's going on in this book. Um, And I just think it's, like, such a... It's just, like, a comfy series. I don't know. Maybe I'm just inspired by, like, the Nor'easter going on outside right now. Just, like... It's just just warm. It's a warm story. So I'm really excited to read that. I've been wanting to for a minute now, so... I think I have read that one, but I don't really remember it. But I remember really thoroughly enjoying A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they're awesome. It's a great series. I'm excited to revisit it. Um, so if our listeners want to find us, Peter, where can they go? Uh, they can go to facebook.com forward slash sci-fi sidebar. They can go uh, to facebook.com forward slash signifying nothing network. They can email us at sci-fi sidebar at signifying nothing network.com. Mm-hmm. Um, they can find us on Twitter uh, at Sig Nothing There Nick. it is. I can never <laughs> remember which abbreviations are happening there. Yeah. And you made the Twitter. Did I? That doesn't sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that was you. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> so, our episode on A Closed in Common Orbit will come out on March 1st, right? Yeah. That worked out well. Yeah, March 1st. Yeah, I love I love this year in that sense, <laughs> in that one sense. Well, April um, rules it, don't gonna worry. Be, it's going to be really easy to date things for the next two months, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, to date things. Like, when you're at work and you need to date something and you're like, what day is it? It's Tuesday, so it must be <laughs> two plus some multiple of seven. <laughs> I mean, that's... What? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that February, you're like, it's the second month, and the Tuesday is two what? plus a multiple? <laughs> oh. No. I mean that Monday is the first. It's only be the first, the eighth, the fifth. I think that is going to cease to be relevant for me on Tuesday. And then the first. <laughs> I will no longer think about that when I write stuff down after Tuesday. Every Monday it will be useful, and then never again. <laughs> well, it's going to be really easy to date things for the next eight Mondays. So, okay. <laughs> Am I the only one who does this? Am I the only one who gets excited when Mondays on a first? Apparently, I'm more excited. If about you aren't, this... then there's no hope for me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If it's not me, no one else on the planet does. 
No one else on the planet. Listeners, let us know if you get excited about that. <laughs> oh my god. Alrighty. Tweet at us. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network. A tale told by idiots. Alright, bye guys. Bye.